Lights up on a park bench. Lights up on a deck. Lights up. 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 A podcast by the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. Hi, this is Adam from Australia, and my monologue is the stinkiest thing. This circus is so spectacular that audiences refuse to leave after animals perform. Once, an audience chanted encore for three days straight, making the horse horse, the turtle turn turtle, and the seal cartwheel, as it adored the attention. The stinkiest thing is hired to appear on stage as shows finish. Nauseated audiences run for the bathroom and their lives. The stinkiest thing feels a deep sense of pride, knowing it's never failed to lift a bottom of a seat. Until this day, this moment, that child, row E, seat 12, who's still sitting, who's still smiling, who's now panting like a puppy as it moves towards the stinkiest thing. Nothing has ever moved towards the stinkiest thing in its whole stinky life. The child's warm palm slides gently across the length of the stinkiest thing. Feeling touch for the first time, the stinkiest thing is dizzy with strange tingles. Its stink vanishes. Suddenly, it begins to smell like marshmallows melting in hot chocolate. The child picks up the least stinkiest thing, holds it tight, takes it home, plays with it, loves it. They eat together, go to school together, bath together, and every single night, snuggle to sleep in each other's dreams. The child becomes a teenager, and every day the teenager needs a little more space. The least stinkiest thing begins to smell just a little. The distance between them grows, and days pass without touch, not even in each other's dreams. The stinkiest thing thinks only of the past, before the child became the teenager. The voice in its stinky head screams, the child stole my life. The stinkiest thing corners the teenager. It doesn't need words as hate screams from its eyeballs. It storms out of the house, turning back to the bedroom window to enjoy the teenager's pain. The teenager's eyes fill with such sadness that letting the tears go might drown the whole world. The stinkiest thing's heart aches so badly it splinters into a thousand pieces. The teenager moves to the window and pulls down the blinds. Without the teenager by their side, the stinkiest thing sees a very different world to the one they lived in alone. A world where there are no more animal circuses. A world where the stink is everywhere. On beaches, in forests, killing the oceans. The stinkiest thing wanders aimlessly, wrapped in bandages, trying to stop its broken heart from falling out of its body. It throws itself at children's hands, just a touch, a touch to put its heart back together. But children run, pinching their noses, gagging, cursing the stink. 
this breaks the thousand pieces of its heart into dust, a dust that stinks the streets, then the city, then the whole world. A team wearing one meter thick protective clothing and cement up their nostrils bundle the stinkiest thing into a rocket ship and blasts it into deep, deep space. The stink leaves planet Earth. For the first time, humanity breathes as one. Three days later, the rocket ship and the stinkiest thing return with a stinky thud. Written down the side of the rocket ship in big red letters are three words. Return to sender. Every race, every religion works together, united in purpose, to obliterate the stinkiest thing. Brilliant minds create brilliant ideas, which all fail brilliantly. Every failure makes the stinkiest thing more overpowering, more unbearable. People riot. Governments collapse. Seven billion people stampede with such rage, such hate, it fractures the earth. Whole countries drop off the planet, tumbling into the cosmos. Seven billion people run from one falling country to the next until everyone's jammed packed in the last place that's left. The Amazon jungle. Except it's no jungle, as a jungle needs trees. Millions of spaceships are built and filled with humans, animals, insects, every living thing on Earth. Millions of engines roar as one, shaking, crumbling the Amazon. Millions of rockets fire, taking off, burning the old home in search of the new. The stinkiest thing, balancing off the last cup of dirt that was planet Earth, watches the sky of millions of bright dots fading into deep space. As they disappear... They leave a darkness that feels as black and empty as its heart. The stinkiest thing stands in silence of being the only thing in the world with nothing left to hold on to but its tears. And as one drop falls, the stinkiest thing lets go, jumping, spinning, memories flashing and photographs falling. Forever, falling, falling. Bang! Landing with its almighty metallic thud, crashing on the end of the universe. No? A door opens. On the side of a rocket ship, the teenager that was the child that once sat in row E, seat 12, hedges out. Their eyes meet, reflecting each other's sadness. The teenager's warm palm slides gently across the length of the stinkiest thing. It smells like marshmallows melting in hot chocolate. The least stinkiest thing enters the spaceship and the teenager flies them back to the last spoonful of dirt that was planet Earth. The teenager plants a seed. A green shoot becomes a plant, becomes a tree, becomes a most mighty oak. Its roots stretch forever, hugging and shaping an earth without borders. The roots bring worms, the worms bring birds, 
The birds bring animals, and animals bring humanity. And in a moment, when everything is in perfect harmony, the child in row E, seat 12, who grew into the teenager, who grew into the adult, who shrunk into the old, old human, looks at the least stinkiest thing. The kind of look that says, I cannot hold on. The old, old human feels the least stinkiest thing's heart. It doesn't need bandages. The least stinkiest thing feels the old, old human's heart. It doesn't need bandages. They hold each other tight, snuggling to sleep in each other's dreams. Hi, I'm Donald Loftus from New York City, and this is my monologue, Joey. It was a long time ago. I'm not really sure how long ago. Not exactly. And even though it was a long time ago, I still wish I could remember something of it. At least the important parts. At least the most important parts. Although they tell me I shouldn't wish I could. They tell me I shouldn't try to remember. They tell me I shouldn't even think about it. Not anymore. Not after all this time. And so I try not to. I try not to think of it. But sometimes I can't stop myself, no matter how hard I try. I can't help myself from thinking about it and wondering, why would she have even tried it? Coming here, I mean. She must have known of the dangers. Did she think it was going to be easy? Did she think it was just a matter of going from point A to point B? And I can't help wondering what she was like. She must have been brave. I do most of my wondering at night, when it is dark and silent. I lay in my bed remembering, wondering thinking to myself that maybe, just maybe, she had a face like an angel. And I think to myself, yes, I'll bet she had a gentle, beautiful face, like the faces of the beautiful fading angels in the old oil paintings that hang up high on the walls of the chapel of my church. And then, although I try not to, I wonder about her eyes, and I think that maybe her eyes were big and brown and caring. Maybe she had bright and loving eyes, but as I lay there, thinking, as I think more about it, I wonder if instead her eyes were sad, or maybe scared, or both. And I wonder to myself, did her sad brown eyes glisten in that bright moonlight? Did they maybe glisten from the tears that must have been there? I don't know. I imagine that they did, but I don't know. Not for sure. And I can't know for sure. But I bet her smell was warm and sweet, like chocolates. Or maybe she smelled pretty and delicate, 
like the way wildflowers smell. I'll bet her breath was cool and fresh like candy canes. I think her skin was probably smooth, like silk ribbons on a birthday present. I bet her voice was kind, and her hair was soft like a kitten. I can't remember, but I think her arms were strong. Yes, her arms were strong, but also tender and loving. I think I can remember her strong, tender arms reaching out. Reaching out. Reaching out for me. But I don't know. Not for sure. Sometimes I can't stop myself from wondering why she didn't try harder. Why she didn't care more. Why didn't she care enough to fight harder? And sometimes, or rather most times, even though I know I shouldn't, I wonder if she is wondering about me. Does she wonder what I'm like? Did she wonder if I care? Did she wonder if I'm wondering about her? I can only wonder. I can only guess. I can never know. <sighs> I'm not to discuss it. And I suppose I am not meant to ever really know. They don't want to tell me that she was taken away from me before I could walk. That she was taken away from me before I could know her. Taken away from me before I could tell her I loved her. Before she could tell me. They took her. The border agents. They took her away from me. And I am sure I will never know. I will never know what she was like. I will never know what she was thinking. What she is wondering. They took her away from me before I could understand anything. I try not to think about it. Ever. But instead, I think about it always. I always have. I always do. Always will. Hi, I'm Guy Newsham from Ottawa, Canada's capital city, and my monologue is called Choice. Hope you enjoy it. There's five minutes to go. Five minutes to noon, and my entire life's journey hangs in the balance. Choose one way, and I can fulfill my promise. Follow through on the humble boast my mom makes to her friends at the supermarket. I can pack my bags and head out on the highway towards leafy suburbs and white collars. Make the wrong choice, and I stay exactly where I am. <sighs> yeah, unthinkable. It's just one question among many, but if I count up the answers I'm confident about, subtract those I know I got wrong, and assign a reasonable probability to the others, I know that the grade I want, no, the grade I need, depends on this one question. It's question number 36. 36 is the atomic number of the noble gas krypton, and if the question was about the periodic table, I'd have it nailed. 
Krypton, Superman's home planet. If only the question was about the DC comic universe, but it isn't. Kryptonite is Superman's Achilles heel. Achilles was the hero of the Trojan War in Greek mythology, if only... Oh no, stop! Focus. I'm wasting time. My eyes jump back and forth from A to B. It's a multiple choice question, four choices. Now, D is completely ridiculous. The people who designed the test just couldn't help themselves making such a sophomore joke in a test designed to select freshmen. Though, we just say first-year students now, right? If in doubt, always choose C. That's what my mom told me with a smile. But I know C is wrong, too. A to B. B to A. A, B, B, A. ABBA! The Swedish pop ensemble whose music was featured in the hit movie Mamma Mia! Starring Meryl Streep. A, B, A, B. Perhaps the most common rhyming scheme in English poetry. Chosen by both Shakespeare and Robert Frost. Oh, for God's sake, focus. Focus. Of course, my brain would be far less addled if I got more sleep last night. Or, in fact, any sleep. It was Sammy's last night before his family left for their long summer vacation. He chose to defer his exam, so there was nothing holding him back. And I swore I'd leave Sammy's place early, but when you get locked into a game of Call of Duty you lose track. And it was only on a pee break that I spied the creeping blush of dawn through a fritted bathroom window. By then, I figured there was no point in even trying to sleep. So, it was Red Bulls all the way. Which might have worked if they weren't laced with absolute vodka. Oh, right now, Sammy will be asleep in the back of his parents' station wagon. Halfway to his parents' beach house while I remain fogged in between answers A and B. Gina is sitting in the row of desks beside mine. She's a few feet in front of me. They've staggered the rows in a lame attempt to prevent cheating. But if I slowly elongate my neck, surreptitiously tilt my head to the right and squint, I can see her answer sheet and which of the little circles she's filled in with the point of her pencil. See, Gina's a straight-A student. A B wouldn't be in her report card vocabulary. So if anyone knows the difference between an A and B with certainty, it's her. I search for question 36 on her sheet, but that corner is obscured by her shimmering jet-black hair that tumbles over her sun-honeyed shoulders as the clock ticks ever closer to noon. And it's not really cheating. I just need to confirm my own bias. You know, it's like a phone-a-friend from that TV quiz show. No one calls that cheating, right? Except I can't really call Gina a friend, sadly. At any moment, she could technically turn around and catch me gazing, but I know she won't. She hasn't chosen to look in my direction all year. She leans back, arching her spine, bringing her shoulder blades together with a gentle groan. A satisfied stretch that says she's on her way to wherever she wants to go. In doing so, her answer sheet is momentarily revealed, but just as I'm scanning for question number 36, my view is blocked yet again. I look up confused to see the accusing face of Mr. Johnson staring down at me. 
He's traveled way faster and more clandestinely than I ever could have imagined. From his proctor's desk to my desk. God, and he knows exactly what I've been doing. I think I'm about to throw up. Oh, and it's only now that Gina looks my way, along with everyone else in that stuffy gymnasium. I am abruptly and absolutely abject. Hi, I'm Rex McGregor in Auckland, New Zealand, and my monologue is Boots Vacation. Some kids can't skateboard. I don't make fun of them. I respect people with disabilities. Life's pretty cruisy. Give me my board and I'm good. Only got one problem. Mom and Dad won't call me by my skater handle. Boot. They say that's not my name. I tell them, ask anyone who counts. <laughs> Man, this sucks. Parents dragging me off to Europe to get a dose of, quote, culture, unquote. Seems Chicago don't got none. I ain't never been across the lake. Now I have to ollie over to the Atlantic. Can't even take my skateboard. Hashtag Thrasher, not happy. France sucks. Only decent turf is one castle, Amboise. Guy called it Amboise, but I saw it written down, and it's Amboise. Anyway, I got this cool spa or ramp. Real smooth so they could ride horses up and down in the olden days. No cruising allowed now, though. Shame. Italy sucks. Except maybe the Pope's place. Got a spiral ramp. Pretty gnar, but wheels got banned. And the guards totally won't take bribes. Berlin sucks. If you go somewhere called the Reich's Tag, you expect to see some tagging, but no joy. Awesome spiral ramp in the dome, though. So tempting. The guards are armed with submachine guns. Copenhagen? Not too sketchy. At least the round tower's round. Spiral ramp 10% gradient on outer wall, sloping to a solid 33% on inner wall. No guards round. <sighs> really missing my shred sled. London sucks. Spiral quote ramp unquote in City Hall might be spiral, but it ain't smooth. So sure ain't no ramp. Just huge stairs. We try skating down, you get jolted all the way. Mega ouch. Europe sucked. Nearly home. Last stop over, New York. <sighs> Wild struck gold. Guggenheim Museum, sickest paradise ever. Whole building is one ginormous spiral ram, smooth as. And no submachine guns in sight. Met some skaters in Central Park. They lent me a board. Great to chill on wheels again. Raved about the Guggenheim Super Ramp. Uh, one dude knows a geek who, who knows how to disable uh, alarms and, and security cameras. We're gonna sneak in after hours tonight and party time! Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Best vacation ever. I heart New York! Hi. I'm Allison Fradkin, originally from Chicago, and this is my monologue, Holy Inappropriate. Oh, 
Good morning, young ladies. <laughs> Welcome to the first annual Pure and Simple Conference. I'm Mary Jo Genesis, and I'll be leading today's first breakout session, The Birds and the Believers. Oh, so many disciples at my disposal. Not even Mr. Christ's crucifixion attracted a crowd this colossal. <laughs> oh, I see each of you is wearing her virginity as required with its promotion of celibacy as desired. <sighs> Seeing the words, sell me more, sell me more, printed across each chaste chest. <sighs> I've got chills. <laughs> They're purifying and I'm oozing control. Self control. Ignorantly blissful and blissfully indoctrinated and content with your mission in life, submission. You can't wait to create a family, nay, an army for God, but you will wait. Not only that, you will throw your weight around. Now, during the waiting period, you may find yourselves thrust into lust. These feelings you're experiencing are not unlike personal goals and higher education. They must be passionately denied. This is where self-control comes in, along with self-something else. <laughs> According to Proverbs 31:13, a virtuous woman worketh willingly with her hands. That verse calls us to use faith-friendly fibers in the construction of our modest attire. Taking the characteristics of a virtuous woman out of context, taking anything in the good book out of context, is something we do religiously, so it's all hunky-dory. If you are willing to work with your hands as Jesus commands, waiting can be tolerable, pleasurable, preferable. That's because a baby is not a female's only bundle of joy. She also has one generously applied to the exterior of her reproductive organs. It is called clitoris. This, not creation, is our creator's most perfect design. Like you girls, clitoris has a servant's heart. Each and every one of its nerves serves the sole purpose of enabling you to experience the rapture righteously and regularly. Thank God. <laughs> Thank you, God. Those unsaved unbelievers don't call us biblical clitoralists for nothing. <laughs> now, inside your swag bag is a rudimentary replica of clitoris in the form of a pom-pom ball. Let's expedite its excavation, for upon location, you will embark on your very first pilgrimage to exaltation. <sighs> well, what are you waiting for? <laughs> if Jesus can turn water into wine, we can turn ignorance into bliss. Because the gospel truth, girls, is that the second coming belongs to Christ, but the first coming belongs to you. Hi, I'm Jeff Dunn from Baltimore, Maryland, and this is my monologue, Crossing to the Other Side. Gods and goddesses of the jury, 
You have asked that I speak in defense of myself and the sins that I have committed. And I know what you're thinking as you look at my face. Sloth. And that's completely understandable. After all, I am what I am. And let me be perfectly clear about this. I wouldn't change if I could. I'm proud of what I am. Maybe too proud. Perhaps that's my sin. There are some who would accuse me of hubris, but I believe that my actions are not merely explainable, not only defensible, but in fact should serve as an inspiration to others like me. Now, before getting to the admittedly very regrettable incident that brings us here, well, brings me here, I mean, this is where you are all the time, right? Anyway, let me set some context. Go back to the beginning, if you'll indulge me. It all began when, from a distance, I first laid eyes upon the love of my life. Brady, you must know her. I mean, you're divine beings, after all, and there is no more divine creature on Earth than my lovely Brady Potaday. Just to look at her angelic face seemed to call down the rays of heaven themselves, a shining halo around her like... Sorry, I digress. Where was I? Oh, right. Pile up deaths, context, explanation. Okay. I won't deny that my friends and family were dismayed at my behavior. You're moving too fast, they all said. Slow down, take it easy. That's an understandable reaction. After all, slowing down is what my family does best. But I think that's because they've never experienced the true fiery passion of love. And surely, if I am guilty of any sin, it is the sin of love. Now, I know what you're thinking. Love or lust? A fair question, I cannot deny that I craved the soft embrace of my Brady, that I spent nights imagining our passion, two of us entwined like animals pawing at each other under the stars. But I ask you, is this not natural? Is this not how a species sustains itself? When push comes to shove, as it were, it is the intellectual, instinctual passions that carry us forward into future generations. Surely, no one would deny this. But that's not what worries you. You, my jury. I think you are concerned with other matters. Other sins. Anger, greed, gluttony, envy. Yes, I cannot deny that faint traces of these may have touched my heart, but love will make anyone crazy, will it not? But all right, let's get to the source of the problem. Larry, 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 Larry. Big-eyed, brown-haired Larry with that permanent smirk glued to his stupid hairy face. Larry, Larry. Yeah, 
I hated him. The way he would just lie around all day, expecting the world to take care of him. And of course, I was jealous of the way he got along with Brady. And for no other reason than being born on the south side of the highway. Had I been born on the south side of the highway, things would have been different. They say the grass is always greener and all that, but in this case it's true. And that's why I took those leaves. You see, it wasn't greed, it wasn't gluttony, I needed those leaves. Not for myself, I'm above such pettiness. I eat only what I need, and maybe a little more on Sundays, because as Mother always said, nothing starts the week off right like a good solid BM on Monday morning. No, no, I never intended to keep those leaves for myself. I needed them to win the heart of my Brady. And so now we come to the central issue, don't we? The reason, I believe, why you asked me to appear before you, crossing the road. Was I merely jealous of those rampant, irresponsible chickens? Did I think myself as immortal as this August jury? No, most certainly not. Was it a smart move? Also, probably not. But it was a necessity. I had to brave the rush-rush of those shiny metal demons the humans drive along the highways at breakneck speeds. In the course of one's life, there comes a necessity to move from point A to point B, a calling that simply cannot be denied. I assure you that I tried to time it so that I'd reach the south side before. But who could have known that the highway would be so wide? Sure, perhaps I stopped for a breather and a nibble on the way. After all, a sloth must eat to survive. And the benefits of frequent naps have been scientifically validated. In hindsight, yes, perhaps it would have been smarter to do that on the median, but who amongst us has not experienced the occasional lapse in good judgment? Now, I know that your focus must be on the pileup. Yes, there were a lot of cars that smashed into a big heap. Yes, the big truck did spill 17,000 gallons of pasteurized milk over the countryside, but think of all the animals that fed. And yes, maybe a few select cattle were forcibly ejected from a livestock trailer, but again, look at the positives. How often does a cow get to experience the exhilaration and freedom of flight? Not very often, I think. Please. I beseech you, my jury, to look beyond the simple answers, to delve into the true emotions at the heart of this unfortunate matter. Personally, I think reporting it as, quote, the deadliest traffic accident since 1974 is nothing more than extreme exaggeration by a small number of sensationalism-driven, money-grubbing pseudo-journalists working for the Antigua Gazette. This. This is a story of love, my friends. Forbidden love, perhaps, but still love. The love between two slots, fated to be born on the opposite sides of the highway. 
This is our species, Romeo and Juliet, a story of devotion, purity of mind, only barely interrupted by midnight fantasies that, in all fairness, are as much the responsibility of the government for allowing humans to put up those road signs sporting those sexy pictures, all silhouetted and provocative, with their suggestive sloth-exing slogans and... Sorry, where was... Right. This is like the sloth version of the Fantastics, merely replacing show tunes with the melodious sound of screeching tires and the heavenly thunderclaps of crumpling automotive sheet metal. In summary, I return to my opening statement. I stand by my actions. And when you make your decision, I think you too will see what they truly represent. A sloth following the call of his heart. Thank you. Hi, I'm Marge O'Neill Butler from Miami Beach, Florida, and this is my monologue, Something Remembered. I ring the doorbell like she'd taught me to do, step back so she can see me through the side lights, but she just stares and doesn't open the door. I smile and wave. She still stares. I speak out loud and say my name. It doesn't register. How is it possible she doesn't know me? After all the years I've spent here, I try the door and it opens. It was never unlocked. I open it slowly so I don't frighten her. She just stands there. The hall is filled with boxes and other odd things. A narrow path leads to the rest of the house. This was the home that gave me so much joy, a way to start my life over. A nest for an unwanted little girl. She cooked and baked made my clothes, tucked me in at night, made me feel at last as if I belonged somewhere to someone. Now, the woman who became my mother by default is a wisp, shrunken, timid, It's only been a year. Been away in the service. I've written often. Then I see my letters by the door in the rest of the litter, unopened. I guide her into the house, down the dirty hallway, into the kitchen. As soon as we enter, she rushes to the sink and fills her kettle. Cupboards are searched until she finds a packet of unopened cookies. The kind I like, with the white icing inside. Maybe she does know me, but can't express it except with tea and cookies, which were at least a year old. Has she been saving them for me? She doesn't say a word. I make 
idle conversation about the army, how I've been promoted, where I've been, there isn't a glint of interest. Although, she seems to listen, where has she gone? How did this happen in such a short time? Or maybe, I didn't notice when I left home. Maybe I was too concerned with myself and my new adventure. Her only son is dead, so no one is there to take care of her. I went away because it was the right thing for me to do. I aged out of the system. I didn't have money for college, so joining up was really my only option. So we sit and have tea. Not talking, but there's an old familiarity of being in the kitchen, of quiet times spent together. Every once in a while, she'll give me a shy smile, as if she has a secret, one that I'll never know. Has she lost her ability to speak while she was living alone? I stay for a while, not wanting to leave. But I know I have to get her help. I tell her I'll come back. As I start to leave, she grabs my hand and takes me upstairs. Stops in the middle of the hall. Does she want me to pick a room? I know which one I'd pick. My room. The one that looks out over the garden. With the window seat I sat on for hours reading books. But I can't stay. I only have 48 hours of leave, and I need to be sure she is settled and cared for. I take her downstairs into the living room, move a bunch of stuff so she can sit down. I tell her, I'll be back. She's crying. There isn't a sound, but her tears are making little rivers down her cheeks. I leave her there and go to our church. It's the first place I can think to go. My mother always helped people in need. And now she's in need. Pastor Neil tells me she hasn't been coming to church, but because he's been busy with church business, he hasn't followed up. He promises to get help for my mother. I go back to the house, and she's on the porch, waiting for me. I spend the rest of the day, and the next, cleaning the house. She follows me around and hands me things, but lets me do the work. I'm proud of the way it looks when I finish. Just like the way she likes things the way she taught me. And I stay overnight in my room with the funny old twin beds. In the middle of the night, I hear a noise and sit up. Mother slipped into my room and into the other bed. In the semi-darkness, I can see her smile as she snuggles under the covers. I tell her I'll be leaving, but I'm not sure she understands. I know it'll be hard for both of us, 
I know meals will be coming from the church and people will check up on her, but when we get to the front door two days later, I reach for her hand. I pull her into me to say goodbye. She feels like a baby bird, all thin bone and fragile. Suddenly, she looks up to my face and says, you always wear that perfume. Something remembered in that faraway brain. My name is John Patrick Bray. I'm from Athens, Georgia, and my monologue is called Beacon. Well, this is it. All of it. I tell you where I found this place. Well, that ain't the right way to put it. it. It's been here for 250 years, almost to the day, so saying I found it isn't exactly the book's truth. Penny saver. Yeah. You know, those flyers in the front of the store. Not just Fresh Local Now, that little place where I work. I mean, every store, really. I make sure they're kept in a neat stack, facing up, just above autosaver near the Daily Freeman. I hate when folks just kind of tear through them, taking stacks at a time to soak up water in their basement or pig vomit in the driveway. That's not hyperbole. Miss Edna Rains comes in a few times a month and grabs a few stacks of them to soak up pig vomit and, and yet, inside every issue of Penny Saver, the free, life-saving newspaper print-style magazine, you, you have these little treasures, like this, a listing for an historic lighthouse. Historic in the sense it's old, but it's not registered with the Historic Society yet. But that's a little complicated. I heard someone say, well, not someone, it's Mr. Percy. He's the town gossip and star realtor and member of the town board. I heard Mr. Percy say that no realtor wanted to deal with the Historic Society since they were in a years-long debate over it, or the mayor, or anyone. So the town board got together and decided the best thing to do was put it in the penny saver, figuring someone, maybe a tourist, might want it. Then you come along. You caught me on a good day to row you out here, too. I was told I had to take five lunch breaks today to make up for the one I didn't take yesterday or the previous week before, so I have the rest of the day. I can indeed bank lunch breaks. Well, bank isn't the right word. It's not on the books. The manager, uh, his name is Tim, said that it was a good idea, and I said... Tim, you're not trying to find a reason to fire me, are you? And Tim said no, and then I saw him sweat. But me, I don't sweat. Look at my arms. I rode against the current, and look at them, they're fine. Needed a good workout today. I love exercise, but I hate the gym. 
Who needs it? Too clean. Too many signs trying to tell you that you belong. No fewer than four around the register. I mean, who are they trying to convince? So, uh, this place technically belongs to the town. It ain't federal property like the ones upriver. Historic Society has had their eye on it, but they've been afraid to pounce. That don't mean they won't, huh? Mr. Percy says you need to be careful of the Historic Society. When they smile, they show all their teeth. It's a threat. True for everyone in these parts. Mr. Percy himself, though, he shows his teeth. Shit. Barney's on today. At work, I mean, at Fresh Local. He's unloading soups. The labels face out. So many people buying full sodium when they need low sodium or no sodium. Miss Annie Fax can't live with that much sodium in her blood. The doctors know it. I know it. I think Barney knows it too. He should get manslaughter at least if something happens to her. Would never happen. How do you convict unless you know? So many small, meaningless deaths happen every day. But if you look closer, you'll see every single death is planned. Know how I know? There's a scientist who says that human beings are supposed to live 150 years. And everyone I know dies at around 70. Why do you think that is? It has nothing to do with going to the gym and everything to do with what other people have planned for you. See? Like this lighthouse. I think someone planned for you to see it. Someone planned for me to take you here and now you're going to buy it. I mean, it's up to you, but there's only one boat and I'm the only one who can row. Take the lighthouse, stranger. Fight off the historic society. When you see people on the street, smile with your teeth. Hi, my name is Dee Lee Miller from Rego Park, New York, and my monologue is The Review. Now's good? Of course it is. I scheduled it. Is that your new playlist? Really? This is so bizarre, Roger. 20 years working for you, and I'm still getting reviewed? (laughs) These fingers hold the history of office tech. From Selectric to the Wang Room to... Remember MS-DOS? XTs, ATs, Apples... Word perfect, AOL. (laughs) I know this is public relations, but keeping up with the new is getting old. The golden age of M&A. Remember when the Challenger blew up and came across the wires and we all went to the conference room? Remember? 9-11? Conference room again. My life has passed working in this place. 
When I started here, things were rosy. Our lunches were paid by the clients. We got cars home. This is where you offer me a 3% raise, and I say I need 4% so I can have something to show for my time. A pocketbook used to do it, but 3% barely covers a night out in the city. And this is where you say, come on, 3% over 20 years adds up to 60%. And I laugh, because I don't like to cry in front of you. Even though I have. Music is calming. Just don't let Robert hear. It's a stressful job. I know. Every five minutes, a press release. In the overtime. Did you put this song on twice? I loved Mick Jagger. I was going to marry him. Or have his child. Oh, I loved those lips. I was in love with the world back then. Stories used to end well. Movies. I knew all the songs on the jukebox, even if some were as old as Elvis. Now I can't find a jukebox, let alone a diner. I think we should go back to radios. I want to be surprised by the fate of a song dropping just when I need to hear it. When I need an answer to fall from the heavens and suddenly your song would play. Those were the days. That was a good song. Julianne is getting married, by the way. I give her three weeks to quit. That makes how many assistants that have come and gone? 35? 40? Marriage? Children? How did they do it? Half the trees in the conference room started as thank you plants on my desk from kids who are in grad school already. Yes, there's all that time the computer saved us. But all the classes we had to take to keep up. I want the time back, Roger. Or I want to slow down my life. 20 years. My misty watercolor memory should not feature rapicoms and letter merges. I'm tired of being scared about keeping my job, always looking over my shoulder. So I'm going to stop right here, right now. I'm sending out a release. company makes you do these reviews. You hate them too. Roger, I've noticed. I see your face every day, and I know I'm not your wife, but you really need an antidepressant. You need to see your way to the world of new clients. They aren't the same. But you? You really have it all. I mean, you have a wife and three kids, two in college, and well... Jackie will come around. He's a late bloomer. You think this is because of him or it's genetic? I never told you this. But every Christmas, when I think of George Bailey, I think of you. You have a wonderful life. You're a great boss. If you went anywhere, I'd follow you in a minute. You want a chocolate? Do you miss the good old days? I used to be nostalgic, but I'm not anymore. I can't miss the life I never had. It's too late for Raffi and Sesame Street, and it was almost too late when I started for Ella and Sarah Vaughn. I don't even know what I'm supposed to be missing now. 
So what I guess I'm saying is, I quit. And yes, you can expect me to quit again next year. Not even a smile? Okay, enough. You want to order lunch or did you bring? Look, 3% is fine unless there's something else you want to say. No? Oh, those boxes? You have to use the special ones for storage management. Roger. Are you leaving? I'm so sorry. You know, when Fred left, they made Mindy leave too. The minute you stop looking over your shoulder. Hello, my name is Chris Eli Black. I am from Louisville, Kentucky, and this is my monologue, The Sun as a Gift. Getting out is easier than staying out. You get out, fine. Good for you. You got one step forward. Now you gotta make sure nothing's gonna drag you all the way back. And trust me when I tell you that something or someone's out there just waiting for you to slip so they can pull you back to start. I know, because I've been pulled back much more than I've sprinted forward, mostly on account of my trusting everybody who smiles in my face consequence of being raised by a good family, I suppose. Didn't expect that, did you? Somebody as screwed up as me coming from good folks. Yeah, I've heard the gaps before. The blindly incorrect assumption that I must have come from a couple of domestic terrorists who ruined my mind and let me down a path of trouble. But nah, that's not what it was. My parents held me until I was too big to be held. They read me bedtime stories till I could recite every one on my own. And don't get me wrong, that's good stuff. That's all good stuff. To be loved, cared for in that way. To know that no matter what, Somebody was going to be at home when you got home. That you'd never go without dinner, even if one of your folks had to. Now that's love right there. Real love. Not that processed, manufactured love you be seeing on TV, where everything always works out at the end of the day, no matter what, and all is always forgiven. That's not love. That there is called lies. Don't buy it. Real love, whether that's with your family or with, you know, somebody you're in love with, it's messy, but it's worth the mess. All the mess, all the dirt and scum and hurt. Cause there ain't nothing quite like real love. 
So no, I wasn't a damaged offspring. I am damaged though. And I do have hurt. And I do got secrets too. Quite frankly, I got more secrets than I do truths. Not a good feeling, having all that pile onto your soul like a ton of bricks. But here we are. That's why I'm here, to let some of this out, to let you know who I am and why I am the way I am. Not much more complicated than that. Then again, it's extremely complicated. Used to tell myself that an easy life was impossible, but it's not. There's plenty of people with easy lives, a whole lot. And they go day by day and year by year, just skating through, never too concerned, because they know no matter what, they're gonna be all right. And what they lack in feelings, they make up for in dollars. I got here through a lot of pain. I am always in pain. In the beginning, there was a child smiling and playful, Everything was a game. Everything was a discovery. The sun was a gift and the moon was a calling to close my eyes and dream out loud. You go from that to someone who's afraid of the moon because nothing good happens once it's up and the streets become bare. You, you get so much love, which is so great and so lovely and so needed and so necessary. But then you expect everyone to be the same. You expect everyone who holds out their hand to be a friend, to be a savior. You soon learn that anyone can smile. Smiling is simple, it takes no muscle. We all do it and we don't always mean it. We don't see that in our worst days. Then as soon as we clock it, it's too late. And as soon as someone who smile means something comes along, you don't know what to do with that. You don't know what to say. You sure know how to screw it up though. There was a girl, because there's always a girl, and I loved her because there's always a love story, but the notebook, this ain't. She died. I wasn't there when it happened. If I had been there, I don't know what would have happened if I were there, but I wasn't, so I'll uh, never know. It wasn't my fault. But it wasn't not my fault because I could have been there. I could have kept an eye on her and stopped her. I could have tried. That was the next chapter. The worst chapter. 
the one that led me down the spiral of all hell. But there's a difference between going crazy and grieving. Because when someone you love dies, you die too. In a way. You start falling down a hole you didn't even know was there. And there doesn't seem to be a bottom. You just keep going, feeling the wind and the air whip past you. And every little mistake you've made, those flash in front of you. You remember everything. The love your parents gave that you took for granted, there it is. The fact that you didn't love her enough for her to know that life was worth living, you see those. Then you finally hit the bottom. You hit rock bottom. Not fun. You stay there for a while, long time not fun and you run back to the parents that loved you the only people besides the one you lost that actually loved you whose smiles meant something and you let them hold you and read you bedtime stories again the only way to move ahead is to never forget what's behind don't forget don't forget them don't forget her. And one day, one day after a long series of long days, the sun comes out and you're grateful for it again. It is once again a gift. <laughs> like back in the day on Christmas morning, when you'd run out your room to the sounds of the songs that never changed, the blinking lights and dangling ornaments that symbolized the times, the snow melting against the concrete outdoors. And the moon gave me permission to dream, to be a dreamer again. My eyes opened to the light and you know what you learned? Man, you learn that rock bottom is the best place to be. Believe me when I say that, no matter how crazy it sounds, when you're at rock bottom, well, there you are. At rock bottom, the only place you can go is up. So that's what you do. So that's what I did. And that's how it ends. But it doesn't end. You get from one point to another and then just like a strange cycle, you get to start again. I got to start again. She's gone. I'm here and I get to try again.
Hi, I'm Peter Decutis from Decatur, Georgia, and here's my monologue, Aunt Re. Yes, yes, I was crying, but um, <clears throat> I'm okay now, really. No, it's not anything my mom said. I mean, not directly. It's about the mess I created. <laughs> not this mess in the kitchen, although that's part of it. It's about my Aunt Re. That's right, you, you met her at our wedding. She died so suddenly, you never got a chance to know her. We were very close when I was growing up. She was my favorite relative. My grandmother was a great cook, and she passed along all her knowledge to Aunt Ree. Uh, definitely, my mother was not interested in that sort of thing. I used to love spending time with Aunt Ree in her kitchen. I learned a lot from her. Yes? That's where I got my love of cooking. She was great. Uh, except whenever you asked her something. She had to explain everything, starting at the very beginning and going through each step. This didn't bother me as a child, but it became more annoying as I grew up. If you asked her about something and already knew most of the process, say you were on step six and had a question about step seven, She'd still go back to the first step and start from there. One time after college, when I thought I knew it all, I wanted to make this special braided bread she taught me to make. But there was a point in the process where I wasn't sure about a step, so I called her to ask about it. Of course, she started from the beginning. I was in a hurry and not in the mood to deal with her way of explaining things, so I cut her off and ask, can we just start with the step that I was at? She started again from the beginning, and I, I, I just lost it. I asked again about the step I was at, and she started again from the beginning. So I told her I had to go and hung up on her. I felt bad about it later, but we never discussed it, and I, I sort of avoided her from then on. So the time passed, and I never found out the step I was missing. I was thinking about that bread and wanted to try to make it today. <laughs> you can tell by the mess. It didn't go well. I called my mom on the wild chance that she might know, but of course she didn't. I told her the story about Aunt Ree. She said... Henri had never mentioned it to her. And then she said it was obvious that Henri had forgiven me. But I was never going to get from point A to point B until I forgave myself. That's why I was crying. No, <laughs> you're sweet, but uh, I'm all right. Let me have the kitchen a little while longer giving it one more chance. Love you too. Okay, Aunt Ree, I'm ready. Start from the beginning.
Hello, this is Thomas White from Ringgold, Georgia, and this is my monologue, Oars. I remember our first trip together. You came home late from work. We have to go somewhere, you say? Now, I ask, it's cold out. You bring out my coat and my hat and my gloves. My heart pounds. You drive. I ride with you in silence. The old car creaks. Yeah, my throat constricts, pulls itself down into my stomach, and I, I can't breathe. It snows. You stop the car at a meadow. Roll down the window. Snowfall gets caught in the heads of tall hay. And you take my hand and lead me into the field. We walk hand in hand through the powdered grass, scattering the snows across our knees. And we come to a boat. A small, wooden, gray from salt. You know, oars slack in the grass. My throat pulls itself to my knees. I step back. You step into the boat. You hold my elbow as I step inside. We sit side by side. Our faces turn to the moon. More snow falls and clouds the sky. It covers our laps. Everything is gray, I say. The moon, the sky, this boat. They are all gray. Gray is only silver that hasn't learned to sparkle yet. You say. The snow stops. The clouds move. The moon begins to shine. Look at me. I feel it is for the first time of what will be forever. Look at me. Looking at you. The stars begin to wake. And if my throat releases, I breathe silver in the night. Take up the oars. I can row forever. You say. Lights Up is a podcast produced by the Ensemble Theater of Chattanooga, a 501c3 nonprofit independent theater company located in southeast Tennessee. Lights Up is hosted by Christy Gallo and Dana Colagiovanni. Sound by Eric Red Wyatt, graphics by Jamie Goodnight, and Casey Keelan as the associate producer. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, copied, or presented without the express written consent of the Ensemble Theatre of Chattanooga. The plays presented on this podcast are protected by all national and international copyright laws. If you are interested in producing any of the plays featured on Lights Up, contact us and we will get you in touch with the playwright. If you would like your play considered for a future episode or would like to be an actor or reader, 
please shoot us a message at lightsup at ensembletheaterofchattanooga.com. As a nonprofit, ETC relies on donations and the goodwill of patrons and supporters like you. If you would like to make a one-time donation to ETC, please visit our website for details. Or you can become a monthly subscriber on Patreon and get access to exclusive content. You can also support us by giving us a like and rating this podcast. Lights Up is hosted by Anchor, a Spotify company. The easiest way to make a podcast.